0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time, on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. America's power is in decline, its foreign policy adrift, its allies alienated, its soldiers trapped in a war that even generals regard as unwinnable. What has happened these past eight years is well known; why it happened continues to puzzle. In his new book, Daydream Believers, our guest today, Fred Kaplan, explains just how George w Bush and his aides got so far off track and why much of the nation followed. Kaplan writes the War Stories column at Slate.com. The author of The Wizards of Armageddon and writer for The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic Monthly, Kaplan worked as a foreign policy aide on Capitol Hill and spent decades as a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter in Washington and Moscow. Fred Kaplan, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks. Good to be here. How are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good? good. Are we talking to you in New York? Yes. Is, is the weather fine there? Is everything...
1: It's not bad. It's been very cold, but I don't know. It's about 50-something now. It's probably not as nice as it is out there, I'm sure.
0: Oh uh, Well, it is, well, I'm not going to brag on it, but it is, it is pretty nice here right now. 78? We, we're, we're lucky. It's about 72 degrees. Yeah, we've, had, okay. we've had clear blue skies and big puffy clouds rolling through. And, and wait, wait,
2: it did rain for about 15 minutes on Sunday. <laughs> oh, what a shame. <laughs> I, <So. laughs> and it was lightning. It
0: was great. I enjoyed it myself. Okay. And speaking of lightning... How much did the world change after 9-11?
1: Well, that's one of the the, the grand ideas that I say wrecked American power, this idea that that many people had that that everything changed after September 11th. You know, the the Bush administration in particular used this as the mantra that, that allowed them to ignore all lessons of history, even rather recent history, about how problems had been solved or at least dealt with in the past, this completely changed everything. But, you know, if, if you look at it, it, it really didn't change very much. I mean, certain things about the world changed after September 11th, not least Americans' perception of their own vulnerability. But uh, the nature of power, uh, the nature of, of politics among nations, uh, the, the, the nature of war, the definition of victory within those wars, they, they really haven't changed very much over the centuries. Mm-hmm. And so, so, in other words, the the lessons of history still hold. The the lessons of of, of how to amass power through alliances, for example, uh, have have not been outdated. So go ahead, Mike.
2: Well was it, was it the was it this assumption on the part of uh, certainly a, sitting here in America looking at post nine eleven? It looked like the world. Was changing. It looked like there was an opportunity and an opening to mm-hmm. change, radically change the way that we dealt with these kinds of incidents. Uh, these well, sort that's of uh, true.
1: In other words, you mean reaching out to other countries, mm-hmm. taking advantage of a moment when probably there was more sympathy toward the United States than at any time in decades. Well, so, yeah, more, more. Cons- yeah. There was more sense, of a consensus. Absolutely right.
2: Well, that's. I guess what I was, was getting to was the idea that things were changing. They sort of ran with it, but they ran with it in in almost a doublespeak, sort of an Orwellian kind of way. In the other
1: direction. Yeah. You know, here's the thing. Where where, where the big change in, in world politics had really taken place, uh, and and this was misunderstood even more radically, was at the end of the Cold War in 1991. Right. And, and an, another huge mistaken assumption that these guys made, and then it wasn't just them, it was a lot of people, was that we emerged from our cold war victory stronger than we were. In fact, you know, the the phrase that was often bandied about was the sole superpower, when in fact in a very important way we were weaker. Because the cold war while it was, you know, a horrible time in many ways, it was also looked at objectively a, a system of international order and security. You know, to put think, paint things very in oversimplified fashion, you know, there was the western bloc led by the United States, the eastern bloc controlled by the Soviet Union, and a lot of the nations in the Western Bloc and the nations in between would sometimes uh, undermine their own national interests for the, for, to accommodate American national interests, either because they saw the Russian bear over the horizon or as an accommodation in the interest of the alliance or because we were helping to guarantee their security. When the Soviet Union vanished... So did the common enemy that held this alliance together. So did the foundations for this alliance. And over the next several years, these countries in between <clears throat> sort of realized that they could go their own way, pursue their own interests. Not, not so much necessarily anti-American, but, but without much regard to what Washington thought about the matter. Uh, this was reaching almost a peak when Bush came into power. Other countries were rising, China, the EU, at least, as an economic entity. And so if, if you've actually grown weaker, if, if, if your influence is less and you behave as if you're the almighty, you're going to end up making yourself weaker still. And that's, what, that's one of the tragedies that has taken place in the last eight years, that there were... Rather traditional ways that, that, that a leader could have accommodated to this new geopolitical setting. Now that, you know, we've always depended on alliances. It's just that they've been taken for granted. Now that they're no longer taken for granted, you have to pursue them even more avidly, not just act as if they're unnecessary and, in fact, more a, a, a hindrance that gets in the way. That that's been a, a huge miscalculation.
2: Now, I, I want to... I think what—I'm going to interpret what you said. The countries of the world knew how to behave in the Cold War. There was a certain protocol if you were either with the United States or with the Soviet Union. But there's also one other element in this, which which I do remember from from the 60s and 70s, which was— with a uh, a host of countries called the non-aligned countries mm-hmm, which were mm-hmm. most prominently seemed in uh, India and Egypt yeah. and Pakistan and some of these others where they weren't really with the soviets and they really weren't with the united states and when the soviet union went away you lost this ability for these countries to pursue their own course playing right. one superpower off the other with the with yeah. the collapse of the soviet union now the united states suddenly is the cop on the beat and and, and probably feels more compelled to impose its will now in in areas of the world where it may not have even had an interest before right
1: but it's but it it, it doesn't work as much you know right. we don't have as large an army we right. don't the dollar is not all powerful right we don't control the instruments but you know it's interesting that the whole term non-aligned yeah that that assumes that it implies that that the basic reality of the world is this alignment either to the to the US led west or the Soviet led east it's like If somebody says, I'm a non-smoker, it's like, in a universe of smokers, I don't smoke. In a universe of alignments, I am non-aligned. Well, the universe is not like that anymore. All countries are, in a way, sort of unaligned, or aligned here in this scenario, but aligned there in that scenario. So it's basically, what has happened uh... is that the world is that the united states is really more like an ordinary country now i mean we still are the most powerful ordinary country we we we're the only country with global reach politically militarily and economically and that's why i I think the united states still has the capacity to lead productively and i think there are a lot of nations on earth that that would would like to see that uh... return the whole concept of a superpower is, is, is not even meaningful anymore. We have to, to make our way in the world, align different power blocks, really in the way that countries have always had to over the, over the centuries. I mean, the Cold War was really the anomaly in international politics. What, what has happened is a kind of a, a return, a resumption of, of standard history with a vengeance. And it's going to be very difficult for Americans to adapt to this
0: we're speaking with Fred Kaplan the book is Daydream Believers How a Few Grand Ideas wrecked American Power and and about those grand ideas is is this just a matter of of bad timing and bad luck on the Bush administration to have come to power at that point in time or is, is there incompetence here too a, a huge well, incompetence, incompetence
1: is certainly is certainly part of it I mean it not as aggravated everything but but I think fundamentally it's not so much Miscalculation as misconception, misconceiving what how the world works, what is in the interest of nations. I mean, I I remember when when Condoleezza Rice, excuse me, in the summer of 2006 during the Israel Hezbollah conflict, someone asked her why she didn't go talk with the Syrians, and she said, "Well, the Syrians know what they need to do." Well, you know that might be true, but what the Syrians did not know was what they were going to get for doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had an alliance with Iran. They still do. They profit from this alliance. If we want them to come over to our side, if that's possible, maybe it's not possible, but if we we if we want them to, quote, do the right thing, I mean, they, they, they need some assurances for that. They need some rewards for doing that, as anybody does. And, and so th- this is what diplomacy is. I mean, these guys... Tend to call it, you know, blackmail or you know, it's it's or bribery. Well, that that's not what it is. It's 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 diplomacy, and it 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 has, it's, it's the way the world has worked for centuries. And and these people, alas, until very recently, when when I think recently they have begun to see the error of their ways, but it's probably too late for what, them What's the anyway. sign
0: to you that they've they've seen the error?
1: Well, for example, look what happened in North Korea. I mean, for years hmm. Bush said. You know, our, we 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 don't negotiate with evil, we defeat it. And he said, we will never have one-on-one negotiations with the North Koreans. We will not negotiate anything until they commit to disarm. They must dismantle their reactors first, and then we'll talk. Well, look what, what ended up happening. A, 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 a deal was made with the North Koreans. It was done through a one-on-one meeting in Berlin, uh, then ratified by the Six Powers, it, it called for the North Koreans. Uh, that we would start giving aid to the North Koreans before they actually began to dismantle. Uh, I mean, again, like, like the agreement, that, it, was, it was basically a, a, a recapitulation to the principles that, that Bill Clinton uh, did in 1994, 1995, uh, but not as strong because Bush frittered away so much time not doing anything, that the North Koreans actually developed a nuclear bomb and, and exploded one. So, return to these, or, or look what's going on in, um, there, there's an interesting story in today's New York Times about the, the, the kind of ways that, that we're uh, engaging in counterterrorism these days, involving a lot more of the princi- standard principles of containment and deterrence, which uh, Bush had said after 9-11 were invalidated by the attack on September 11th. So again, I wouldn't call it a return to realism because it's it's not consistent. There, there are still these lapses. It's more a retreat to kind of a randomness. But but it's not it's not quite as dogmatic and doctrinaire as it uh, as it was even just a couple of years ago.
0: I, well, speaking of a return to realism too, in the uh, over the last week at uh, slate.com, you wrote the uh, in an essay called "Afghanistan Envy," mm. right. uh, uh, what Bush said about being uh, well, in, in some ways, it's romantic. Yeah, what's he was going talking
1: on, right? on teleconference with some military and civilian personnel in Afghanistan, and he said, "You know, I, I'm kind of envious of you. If I were younger, uh, not employed here, I, I, I would like to be over there. It's kind—it of, seems kind of romantic—facing danger and mm. fighting for democracy. I mean, you know this." To me, this is just shameful. I mean, look, there are a lot of good soldiers and Marines over in Afghanistan and Iraq who, who, who think that that they're doing the right and noble thing, and they're, they're proud of what they're doing. Uh, but I don't think anybody, except maybe a real, just a weirdo, is having fun at this, who thinks that this is some kind of, you know uh that 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 they're a char- that they're a character in some Rudyard Kipling poem or a john wayne movie i mean to to me and 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 i i mean that's if if this really is the guy's concept of warfare um, i i think he really has no business being commander in chief he has no business ordering young men and women into real life battle it's it's really I think it's really one of the most appalling things that he's ever said and that that's saying quite a lot. It, it, it
2: is it is one of the most perversely patronizing things that I I think uh, our US president has said. Uh,
1: oh, yeah, that's another way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I I think it's just it's just I mean he doesn't know what war is. I mean any uh I'm not saying he has to have experienced war. I mean he supposedly reads a lot of books. There are plenty of books you can read about the experience of of being in battle. And, and nobody, nobody says that it's romantic and fun. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just staggering. It just staggers the mind.
2: Um, And this does speak to something that uh, I've been, you, I've been reading about over the years of the the Bush administration. It's an administration that's replete with people who really have very little experience outside of the United States, who don't, as you, you stated earlier, really don't understand how the world works. And that would be fine if they were at the Hoover Institute or the American Enterprise Institute. That's fine, to be in a think tank and, mm-hmm. and to believe this. But these actual, these are people who have been implementing policies, some of whom have, what, Bush had been overseas like twice in his life before yeah. he became president? Yeah. Uh, and, and I and think this the, has
1: changed a little bit with the appointment of, of Robert Gates, the yeah. Secretary of Defense, who has, I think, had a real bla- breaking influence, B-R-A-K-I-N-G. Okay. on on some of the tendencies that uh, others in the in the government had been uh, had been moving for ever, 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 i did a profile of him for the new york times magazine about a month ago and and came away with with the conclusion not only from him but from talking with other people that 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 his presence uh, combined with rumsfeld's absence removal has shifted the dynamic in, in this administration uh, to the extent that for example things like And, you know, I might be proved wrong on this, but but it seems that, for example, uh, attacking Iran is is an option no longer seriously on the table.
2: Now, we were talking about this early in the news. The report that I got was that... not that anyone's briefing me on this. I don't want to give you the wrong impression here. But that, that, that when Bush asked for a plan to be a specific plan to go after certain targets in Iran, the Joint Chiefs came back with a full-blown war against Iran plan that basically said if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound.
1: Well, this is this is a thing. You know, a lot of this, – this illustrates a constant uh, – tension between the civilian and military world, not just in this administration, and I take my hats off to the military for spelling this out clearly. Yeah. You know, a lot of people just think, oh well, uh all we have to do is dis- to just destroy a half dozen targets and it'll all fall apart. Right. Military people say no. No, listen, that's not the way it goes. Even if all you want to hit is these targets. Well first we have to go after the anti aircraft that are sitting around the targets and you have to the communications they point out that, look, if you want to destroy these six targets, we're really talking about even just to do that, destroying maybe 100. And then, what are your goals here? What are you really trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. So they are trying to point out, and it's not just for tactical reasons. It's just to show that, hey, this is the truth of the deal, yeah. that there is no such thing as a kind of pinpoint precise we might have pinpoint precise weapons, yeah. you know, just startlingly accurate weapons. I mean, it's it, it's amazing the, the technology that's involved here. But destroying targets does not mean winning a battle, and winning a battle does not mean accomplishing the strategic objectives for which you fought the war. And it's it's you know it, it it's it's not that in for a penny in for a dollar. It, it's that uh, there, there are no pennies here. <laughs> you know. Well, that that's uh, yeah. getting involved in this means. Firing off dollars, essentially.
2: Right. Well, you you've covered. It sounds like you have a relationship with some of the higher ups in the military, and, in and have covered them in the past. Uh, by the way, we're speaking with Fred Kaplan. The book is "Daydream Believers: How a Few." Grand Ideas Wrecked American Power. Uh, ever since John Murtha uh, sort of emerged uh, a few years ago, Ooh. and the, the rumblings within the military, he was very much connected to the upper yes, echelon absolutely. of the military.
1: He was basically speaking on behalf of, of certain generals.
2: Right, and we've seen in this last four years a uh, virtual musical chairs. It's uh, it's really quite stunning to when you go back and look at the history of the Joint Chiefs and the people in charge mm-hmm. in, in Iraq, going back to Shinsiki, and, and, and it goes really? on and on. Um, are we going to find out sometime soon or in the near future just what a crisis among the military leadership, how many good generals we've lost in these last five years, and to to our great detriment, how it's going to affect us well, in the future? Well, you
1: know, we're finding that out now. It's not so much the generals. Uh, the thing that I find... and and a lot of generals find more worrisome for the long-term, for for the future of the U.S. Army, is the hemorrhaging of good captains, Mm -hmm. the kind of really creative, innovative captains who are going to become tomorrow's generals. They're leaving the force in droves. Uh, The Army has tried to institute a $40,000 or $30,000 bonus To keep them, but you know, a talented captain—the money alone isn't what does it, and he can make more money than that in the outside world. Uh, You know, just enlisting people into the army to meet the targets, the army has had to relax its standards on aptitude, on on you know moral exemptions, on uh, education. I mean, they're starting to accept more high school dropouts and extremely low-scoring aptitude uh, test-takers than, than than in any time in the last 25 years. There are a lot of generals who are very concerned by this. And when I was following around Robert Gates, he, he gave a speech in Fort Hood, Texas, where he said, you know, the problem is that as long as signing up for the Army means an automatic assignment to Iraq, we're going to have a serious problem here. And, and this is the dilemma because... On the one hand, uh, you know very few people in this world think that we should just get out of Iraq. They think, and I, I'm inclined to agree that that could create a real disaster. At the same time, if we don't make some provisions to get out of Iraq, if we don't create the conditions of which for in which we can if not altogether get out, then at least dramatically reduce the number of troops in Iraq, uh, we're going to be headed down a road where five years from now the army is going to be completely broken.
2: I was that was my question? I was just going to ask you: Is this, and without being too dramatic in this in this assessment, are we seeing something akin to Napoleon in Russia? I mean, are we are mm. we watching the U.S. military literally break in front in before our very eyes?
1: Well, not the Air Force, not the Navy, right, right, but the uh, army, but but the the and. and for for other reasons, probably not the marines either, but the army is in is in serious shape yeah. uh is in serious disrepair i mean it's kind of it's this it's this a very strange uh shambles because on the one hand you you have a fighting force now that that is probably more skilled and effective and and disciplined than than anything we've seen in a long long time uh on the other hand, the institution of the army itself and the mechanisms of recruitment and retention uh, and, and the promotion of, of the kind of people that, that you want uh, up high, that's, that's really breaking apart due to a, a lot of factors. And, uh, and it's, it's going to be a... Uh,
2: how, how does a privatized military like Blackwater factor into this?
1: Uh, well, you know, it does they... factor into it. I, You know, there, there is a lot of frustration. There are guys who would get out of the Army, their terms would be up. Yeah. They get an offer from Blackwater that pays them five times as much money right. for doing essentially the same thing that they had been doing. Right. And, you know, hey, we're all human. What can you do? And, in fact, I, Gates was even toying around with the idea getting, trying to get some lawyers in the Defense Department to see if it's possible. To get uh, blackwater on, for in, in in exchange for getting U.S. contracts, get them to sign what what what's in the corporate world known as you know uh, non-competitive clauses. In other words, you will not recruit any member of the U.S. Army uh, up to say two or three or however many years after he's gone out of the force, and that would. That would that would put it into a lot of the rating that, that goes on.
2: Okay, well, so at what point? <laughs> that's probably not going to happen right away. But at the right same way. time,
1: you need some of these contractors because I mean, they do. We don't have you know, we don't have a large enough army yeah. for just people in the army to do, all, especially the, the logistical things that need to be done. Yeah, you know, laundry, uh, cooking, but, but transportation. We, you know, that's a lot of what. But we these now have contractors tens, do. But
2: we now have tens of thousands of militarily. Elite military-trained uh, soldiers who are now working for a private corporation. That's it's, true too. Something yeah. bothers and, me. And, and, we have and, a broken army, and we now have a, a a budding military that is is completely beyond the reach of of the government, and that that does bother
1: me. Although it's not centralized, I mean, yeah. I would okay. I wouldn't get too carried away in thinking that this is you know like a, the makings of a coup or something like that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but there have been many instances where you know the rules of engagement for these guys is different from those of of the U.S. Army, and and the rules of disciplining are also different. Uh, And this has created some obvious crises.
0: And and
1: it it, it raises questions also about the role of the armed forces in a democracy, quite frankly. It
0: does. does. We're speaking with Fred Kaplan. The book is Daydream Believers. And as far as daydream believers go, uh, is John McCain one?
1: Yeah, I think he is. Mm-hmm. Uh I you know, McCain it's kind of funny. I I don't know where McCain comes out ultimately. He's on the one hand, you know, he has aligned himself with with prominent neoconservatives in the past. At the same time, he's also very good friends and talks a lot with people like Colin Powell and Brent Scowcroft who are more realists. However, my my more my concern beyond these theological questions with John McCain is that um he does have a very militarized view of foreign policy. I I, he, I think his his first instinct in solving a foreign policy problem is to reach for the tank and the smart bomb, mm-hmm. and I have never known him to be otherwise. Yeah. Um, you know, and he talks about staying in Iraq for a hundred years as if it were a, uh, a an easy thing to do. I mean, I don't think he means at the current levels of force, but but still, as if this is just a natural thing for. For us to do. He's also, you know, I know several retired generals who say that, you know, they this is a guy that they would not want to follow. I mean, he's he's a well known hothead. head. Uh, he he he's, he's uh, he gets he's he's fast to rise to anchor, and I think in certain situations, a uh, a cooler demeanor is is what's called for.
2: Well, uh, well, thank you on that optimistic note. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait
1: wait wait, 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 wait,
2: wait. Can you send us out on? on uh, do you feel that th- th- their time is r- uh, run out? Do you think the daydream believers uh, that you talk about in your book have run their course? Are we going to see a change of course in America here?
1: Well, I think we might. Uh, I think though the people who who would who have a more realistic grounding, though, I mean, they, the mess that they're inheriting. The way out isn't so clear. I mean, one reason I think why Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton don't want to talk very much about foreign policy is that the number one issue on the plate right now, Iraq, is is something that really has... There are no good solutions. I mean, we're going to have to choose one option. And by the way, an option might be just muddling through. That's an option, not choosing. Uh, But there's no good way out of this thing, and and it's very hard to articulate, much less to execute, uh, a, a good way out.
2: Well, I certainly hope they they have a, a solution or at least something that that will uh, extricate ourselves from this incredibly, me- this incredible mess. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank on, you. On S- uh, the book is Daydream Believers, How a Few Good Grand Ideas Wrecked American Power. Thank you, Fred Kaplan.
0: Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.